everyone, my name is Matt Hollingsworth, and welcome to another episode of The Remote Show, where we discuss everything to do with remote work with the people who know it best. Thanks so much for listening. The Remote Show is brought to you by WeWork Remotely, the largest community of remote workers in the world. With over 220,000 unique users per month, WeWork Remotely is the most effective way to hire. My guest on today's show is Mesh Lakani. Mesh is a New York-based investor, content creator, and host of Talk Money a story-driven podcast that makes business, finance, and investing simple, relatable, and entertaining. With this new environment, we thought it would be a good time to change up the kinds of conversations we have, and I'm really glad we did. Mesh brings a fresh perspective on remote work in New York, investing, storytelling, and much more. Follow Mesh on Twitter at Mesh Likani and visit thetalkmoney.com to learn more about his podcast and their content. It's highly recommended. Mesh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. All right. We got a few different areas we can go down here, and I'm excited to get into it with you. The first question I always like to ask, though, is what is the thing you're most proud of that you've done over the past 12 months? Matt, that's a really good question. And I think that thing I'm proud of over the last 12 months is we just put out an episode, a narrative podcast for my show, Talk Money, on um, systemic racism from an economic lens, uh, focusing on black business owners. And the reason why I'm so proud of it is that for the last two years, I've been trying to reach a certain level of quality when it comes to narrative podcasting. I really wanted to put out something the same quality as a as an NPR or New York Times. And you know, it took me a couple of years to get there. And I'm really happy that it came with that episode because we started working on it after the protest started and we spent about three months on it and we interviewed, you know, four interviews, probably put 60 hours of work into it and it came out pretty great. You know, I'm very proud of that. I can say, you know, with the other things I've done, I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Or it could be better. This one, I feel like, you know, I really hit it um, hard. I, I have a great team who, you know, my editor did a fantastic job, but yes, the most proud I've been of something in the last 12 months. That's great. That's such a good answer. And uh, for those listeners, I think it's a really important thing for people to go to and listen to, uh, think about. And we will link to that, of course, in the show notes afterwards and through our social media as well, because I've listened to it and it's great. And I think it's really important. So kudos to you. I was hoping you would go into that and give us an opportunity to talk about it. But yeah, really, really important stuff. Yeah, no, thank you. And, and I would love to chat about it in terms of the process of working with you know, everyone from a distance uh, and everything was online and everything was, uh, I mean, very, very uh, specific to this podcast and, and how you do something of a high quality um, without seeing anyone in person. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But before we do, I'd love for the listener to get a sense of where did you get your start? You've got an interesting background. So uh, where would you like to start? And, and where would you, if you give your bio, where do you typically start? And we'll go from there. I typically start back in 2008. My family was a family fund. My, my family had moved here. My dad had a successful exit and moved to the US in 2006. And we started actually, he started investing his own money in, in the stock market right before the crash happened. And, you know, the 2008 recession, the markets crashed in a way that we'd never seen before. You know, even in comparison to what happened in the pandemic, like it was just two completely different experiences. Like I, I've been through, I guess, two cycles, one lasting what would be considered like maybe a month and the other one lasting a couple of years. And that was my first experience with investing, which is my career, learning how to invest in 
companies or public companies when things were going completely south and the housing crisis and the banking crisis. And it was a really interesting time to learn. So that was back in 2008. And since then have broadened my investing career, investing in early stage equity with technology companies, both as an individual, I'm an LP in, in quite a few funds, you know, a small LP. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to say that we're writing these massive checks, but I've had the ability and the privilege to be a part of a lot of these great funds and emerging managers and learning from them in multiple sectors. And uh, started a fund of my own with my partner, Renick Paley, called Mark II. And that was about five years ago. And that was that started out as a credit fund. So we were actually essentially lending uh, companies money in the fintech space. And that transitioned more into a debt and equity hybrid when we realized that you know, to really have upside, you want to have ownership in companies. And I'm now more of an advisor role to Mark II and Rennick runs that ship now and he's taking it to a whole new level. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of that as well. Now I just do some personal investing and I'm 100% focused on building content. Great. Yeah. The the content side is an interesting thing that I've been able to go through uh, that you've been able to create, especially it seems like this has been mostly, is it over the past year you've been mostly focused on the content side or how long has it been for you now? Yeah, I think, I think that would be right. I think, I think it's been a year since I really dived into it. I started mapping this out two summers ago. Two summers ago, I sat there in an office, our office, our Mark II office. And I thought to myself, like, do I want to be in investing full-time or do I want to build educational content for the public uh, when it comes to business, money, and finance? And I had an idea that there's a lot of noise out there. There's not enough curation out there. There's not enough storytelling and entertainment when it comes to teaching business and finance. It seems to just have gotten lost amongst content marketing and ads and companies trying to acquire you as customers and like so much noise. And I really decided, okay, I'm going to go into this. Launched a podcast last November. So not that long ago, but have started thinking out a much larger content play. But that was just the start of it, was just putting a podcast together. Right, right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was really excited to talk to you about because my side interest, if you could call it that, is finance and investing as well. So that's selfishly one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. But also, I think given the context of COVID and and most of our listeners um, will notice right away, this is a different lane we typically operate in when it comes to conversations we've had in the show. And we are actually starting, a, this is the second season of the show now as well. So I figured that this would be an interesting conversation given the environment. So I'd love to start just on the, the sort of the personal finance piece of it. And again, this conversation uh, and your content is timely, I think, and it's needed because like you said, finance content and investing content seems to revolve around trying to convince you of something. And I, I, from what I've seen out there, it's just not very helpful. There's just not a lot of content that's really, truly helpful. And uh, I think this is where you've done a good job of filling the niche. So from a personal finance side, what got you interested in that? Is it just the lack of content out there that was helpful? Or is it something that you wanted to get into for any particular reason? Or is it just interesting? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. I think when you sit on the investment side and you're just looking at the amount of content that's being created as a user acquisition tool, you become a little numb to it. Like, what are people's motivations here? And you look at like the user, the customer, and, and you know that they're essentially being vulnerable and 
you potentially might be taking advantage of whatever ignorance that they may have, if they have any. And I do believe that there's a lot of amazing people that have built trust and they've built like really good personal finance products out there. Like if you look at like the individual personalities, like a Ramit Sethi or like a Dave Ramsey, but it's almost like they've built these like cult followings, you know, people that are like, die hard to their style and whatnot. And I just really started looking around and when I was talking to friends and everyone just seems to still be kind of confused or they just don't know where to start and they're overwhelmed because there's a lot of noise. And rather than being like an individual and saying like, I'm Dave Ramsey, like this is my way of doing this or I'm Ramit and like this is my book and like follow these methods, which I think are actually really great. I would actually prefer to curate. I would like to help explain these things in simple terms, curate the types of people that we talk to, and then repurpose you know everything from an interview into multiple forms of like easily digestible content where I want to build trust with an audience because you trust me and then I want you to trust me on picking the people that I think we should talk to and hearing more like stories so that it's more relatable and so that you can trust those people as well um, and so I'm taking a bit of a more I don't know how to describe it it's not like uh, you know because this is a very much an individual creator style way of doing things versus like a scalable company, I really want you to trust my ability to find and pick the right topics, find and pick the right ways to explain those topics and find the right people to explain those topics. And then I will just guide you through that process. Right. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of this stuff that's out there doesn't package the message in a way that's interesting. There's a real lack of delivering uh, advice that's not dry. And I think you're doing a good job of telling stories and making it so that it's actually something that people can relate to in a real way. So it's a really interesting thing. And so I I have firsthand experience with some level of the advice giving when it comes to the personal finance. I I used to work at a a major Canadian bank as a, uh, and I'm air quoting this, but financial advisor. And I can speak to a bit about what the incentives are for people that are in that position. And it's not an advisory role at all. It's a sales role. So as long as you know that going into it, and that's one of the reasons why I got out of it, because it was just the advice that was given, I didn't think was unbiased and actually that helpful. So it's uh, it's interesting space. That's a really good point, because I think it's something that we forget that it is a sales role. And you know, you could be at a Bank of America here and have a private wealth manager if you have again, that type of privilege or even one of those smaller accounts. And they're only going to recommend you things that they can sell to you. And even if they wanted to recommend you something else, they can't. And because of that, they don't expose themselves to other things. Like they're not out there looking for other things. And I and I don't think it's as simple as like a Wealthfront is all encompassing this because Wealthfront is also trying to sell you something. Yes, maybe they're giving you a portfolio of Vanguard index funds, but then they're going to try to sell you on these other products and get you a mortgage or get you whatever or savings account. And you know, this is where it becomes a bit tricky. And my thing is more, I think people should learn the tools they need to make the best decisions. So if they want to do that, that's great. But the truth is, is that in today's world, whether you're saving for XYZ or you're, you're putting money away for school and putting money away for a house or for a family and you're interested in, in investing in real estate and the stock market and startups and Bitcoin and maybe a small business, like there's just no tool that you can go that's going to help you put a portfolio together. You have to really learn 
all those different avenues. And I think exposing you to different voices to help you think that way is my goal, right? And, and the goal is to give you the tools, teach you the tools, and help you just recognize a few things, whether it's risk assessment or how to allocate properly. Like those are the things that I want to get across to people. And I think you can do that through storytelling. Yeah, totally. And the storytelling thing is hard to get right as well. So you're doing two very difficult things in one. So I'm looking forward to the future of, of the podcast and the content you create. Well, thank you. And congratulations on your season two. Oh, th- thank you. I thought you were going to congratulate me for not working at a new bank anymore. <laughs> well, you know, you're past that. We don't want to remind you of that. So. Oh, right. Right. Of course. Yeah. So, and taking a different tack now, so we, um, obviously this is a remote specific podcast and I think it allows me now to at least be more general with the conversations I have because remote work is now everywhere and it's not necessarily talking about tools and practices and tips and management and all the things that we've talked about before as much anymore. We can really talk about whatever we want because ultimately everybody has now been exposed to at least personally or have heard of remote work. So from the perspective of storytelling, you know, you, you obviously are now having to touch base with lots of different people all over the world, or at least in the US. What is the last three months for you outside of the content and the the actual specifics of the content that you're creating? What has changed for you, both personally and professionally as a result of this remote work trend? Honestly, if anything, I feel like I have more access to people because everyone is at home and they have the ability to get on a phone or get on an interview or hop on text message or or whatever it may be. I think I have a lot more time. Granted, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that are doing back-to-back Zoom calls. Like I don't, and I'm not doing in-person meetings. So, and I live in New York City, like just saving on time to go outside and going from place to place. I just end up being on my laptop more and I'm more productive. And especially with people that are accessible around me, because I know they're not really going anywhere either. So in that sense, it's been more productive, I would say. Right. And what has, because you obviously still have connections in the finance and investing world, whether it's your own company or just your network. What is the environment of finance in New York been like over the past three months? Can you speak to that at all? I mean, I have friends who work in in private equity and, and on Wall Street and on venture capital or whatever it is. And nothing seems to have really changed except they're not in an office, except for my cousin who works at Goldman, for example. So like, he essentially didn't really leave Goldman. They just came and set up a computer setup and a trading platform for him in his own home. And and now he's back at work like a few times a week. So I think depending on the type of institution that you're at, if they have the infrastructure to be like, hey, you can come in once or twice, uh, come on in. So whether they're going to Wall Street or they're going to Connecticut, like there is still access, but it's very minimal. It's like, um, you know, they're not there every day at all. If anything, they probably prefer it than being stuck at home. But everybody else I know that were in like small to medium sized office are gone. Um, hmm. They're all working remotely. I don't know where they are. Some are in their homes, wherever that may be. And some, like a lot of people I know have gone out of New York, at least for the summer, and they've returned for a few weeks and they're planning on leaving again for the fall. And so I think people are just taking this opportunity if they can work completely from home just to go somewhere else until they really can figure out whether they want to be in New York for the long term. Right. Yeah. New York in general, and this is going to be a difficult question to answer, I'm sure, but how does this change your opinion on where New York is in five years? Do you think this really is is a trend that's going to 
have a long standing effect on New York as a city and the culture that's there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, it's a very fitting question given a lot of the commentary that's going around and Altucher's piece on uh, New York is dead forever or whatever. And then Seinfeld coming in and telling him to go, you know, shove it. And then some, you know, Fred Wilson writing a great piece on why he thinks New York will last. And the way I feel here is that I, I was gone for three months. I went to Florida for three months. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to go do that. And we came back and been back here for a month. And I have a lot of friends in like small business. So I have a lot of friends who work in hospitality and it is interesting. It is interesting to see the city. It's not as terrible as people think. Like there is some life here. It's definitely not as much life. It's definitely dirtier. It's definitely like I was just walking down the street and like this guy was assaulting this guy in his car, at least from the outside. But it was like something that you normally would be like, okay, this guy's like trying to smash this guy's window in and no one's doing anything. Wow. But it's not like, like okay, that's going to happen. You're going to get some grittiness back. And I think the winner is going to be the real testing part where we're going to see whether small business can last. Because the issue here is is not only like you can't be inside and serve people. The issue is really more the cost of doing business. Rents are really high and landlords are not lowering the rents. And from what I understand, they're not lowering the rents because they're not really incentivized to lower the rents. They can take tax breaks and write it off if they actually have zero tenants. So if they have no tenant, they can write it off and they can sit on it versus lowering the rent for the tenant. And I actually just heard this from a very good friend of mine who's a restaurateur. And like that is more of a leadership thing. You know, when people are like blaming the landlords, well, the landlords need to be incentivized to incentivize the small businesses to be in there. And so, you know, we'll see what happens with commercial rents and, and small business. And we'll see what happens with people, right? Because like, the residential rents are coming down. We've already seen them come down. And I think we'll see them come down even more in the winter. And if anything, I think that inspires people who couldn't afford living in New York City before to maybe come here a year from now for next spring and next summer. And maybe that sparks up something again. So I think in the next five years, I absolutely believe in the argument that there's a quote unquote reimagined New York City. It's going to be different and that's okay. And we'll see where it goes because there's definitely a lot of folks here for all the people that are leaving, there are people here that refuse to leave. And I do believe that eventually there'll be some people that will come back. Yeah. I imagine I've never lived in, I've been to New York, but I've never lived in a major city. And, and I do imagine there's some sense of we're all in this together. We love New York City or whatever city you know, you're in and let's get through this together. I hope that that's the case as there's a sense of coming together and we'll get through this. And like you said, that five years might be different, but it's still New York. It's just in a different form. So I'm hoping that that's the case. Yeah. And the reality is like right now, it is too expensive to live here if you don't have to be here. Regardless of whether you, whether you think about New York or, or you think that people are abandoning New York, the reality is it's too expensive to live here based on the fact that you know, you're able to work from home. And if you don't have to work here, like if you don't, if you have to work from home, like why are you paying these crazy rents or even just getting from one part of the city to another part of the city in an Uber will cost you like $40 or 20 to $40. And you don't really want to take the subway because you feel unsafe. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to that assessment for people like 
well, I could live in another city. Like I could live in another town. Like I don't really need New York because if my friends aren't there or my family members have left too, like what does it mean to me? I think those are real arguments. So I think the point is you can't look at it in the next six months to a year, maybe even two years, but I think you're right. Like five years from now, I do believe it will survive. Like what it'll look like is unclear. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard the argument too, or the suggestion that Because there's a lot of, I'm sure, as you're aware, in our world, there's this sense of everybody's going to go remote. Offices are going to be completely gone. There's that argument. And and I think that that's probably true for some companies in some stages. But I do think that there's, there's a benefit to having an office in some cases. And I don't think that offices as a concept will go away. But I think that there's going to be a shift towards flexibility. And I don't think that that shift causes as much of a groundswell or change in major cities as maybe people are expecting. I think that there's, again, using the example of New York, New York is still going to be the city it is, but maybe there are a lot of employees that'll be able to work from home in New York and then be able to go to an office or share working space if they want to. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the level of vacancies it's going to have to come down to some correction in price. If there's a correction in price, both on the commercial side and the residential side, why wouldn't you want to be here? You know, like in in the sense of like, there's a reason the city's attracted so many people. We're not even just talking about like attracting like the finance people and the tech people to stay and work here. It's you're going to get like why New York is New York. It's not just finance and tech people. If anything, it's been a lot of other types of cultural factors. You have theater, you have film, you have fashion, you have arts, you have hospitality. And hopefully the lower prices when they come. And I, and again, like I said, in residential, we're already seeing it. Like You can get good deals right now. And hopefully you can get even better deals in the winter. If the commercial rates come down, it becomes interesting. It becomes an interesting thing to see what scene you could be part of in New York. Like if you just think about like, for me, it's like you think about, oh, like those are the people that enjoyed Studio 54. And like, if you watch Rent the Play, like there was this grittiness in like Alphabet City and like with arts and music, like where did all that go? It became very expensive for people to live here. And so can that come back? And does that create an entirely new experience that people want to have here? Yeah, it's a fun rabbit hole to go down to because nobody really knows. But I think that there are more positives. If you can draw positives, and I don't want to diminish the experience of people that are going through rough times, but I hope that there are some positives that come out of this experience. And if it means people are leaving New York or major cities that have a lot of character and going elsewhere, and maybe that's a good realization for them to know about that they are only living in New York because of their jobs. And maybe that means that they're moving for the right reasons and New York becomes better as a result of it. Exactly. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And and better for them and better for the folks that couldn't afford to live in New York and now can have always wanted to experience it. So that becomes interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about the investing side. I know that you've been able to invest as an LP or in your own fund as well through some startups and different companies and in New York and I, I think in the US as well, more broadly. Have you thought about remote work in the sense of whether it's a liability or a strength for companies as a potential investment opportunity? Is that something you, you think about? And that's actually a really good question. Um, I've thought about it in the sense of like, what could be the potential cost of operating a company? 
i.e. does remote work allow for the cost of salary to go down because people have chosen not to live in the city and that's what was basically making up for a lot of the high salaries in places like San Francisco and New York. Obviously, competition is part of it, but it's also the cost of living. And so does the cost go down? And in that sense, I don't necessarily think less money is going to be raised because it seems to be a complete shit show out there in terms of money being thrown around. Like there's just an abundance of capital and there's a lot of smart people out there starting companies. And so does it mean, does your runway go longer? Can you be more efficient with your capital? I think that's kind of interesting. And also like what opportunities, and I mean that in the sense of like companies leaving San Francisco and potentially setting up shops elsewhere? Do you become more cost efficient? And because you've just opened up like some avenues for breathing room, what can you do with that? And does that actually create a larger job market? I think that's interesting. That's how I would personally think about it from an investment standpoint. But then also like from an investment standpoint, what other tools are being created when you think of like potential investments, whether that's platforms that are doing more things for creators and then platforms are building more infrastructure for teams. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here and like betting like a hundred percent, like I wouldn't invest in like a, this is a whole fund dedicated to like remote work, but I do think that it should be of interest to a lot of investors. Yeah. And, and to your last point there, there are, I've seen funds specifically to do with remote companies and remote companies only. So it's, as you can imagine, the niches are all filled when it comes to deploying capital. It is. I mean, there's a fucking niche for everything now. Everyone's trying to find their groove and, and understandably so. I mean, I can't speak and when it comes to investing in like remote teams or tools that remote teams need. It's hard for me to give any type of insight just because I've never ran a team at a company that needs these types of products, right? Like, I mean, for me, like I have, I have a team, a small team of like five people and like Slack does the trick. We use Slack, we use Notion, we use all the, you know, all the cool things right now. And, you know, could things be easier and could there be less friction? Yeah, for sure. But I'm sure like, I, I don't know whether that's a completely new company or someone just creates like an update somewhere or we create some type of process. So I think, is it a balance of, do we need another product or do we just need to have more processes in place to make things easier? Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's the longstanding question of smaller companies that are working remotely. And there's not really a, one good answer from my experience of having talked to a lot of people in that sort of environment. It depends on the person. It depends on their strengths when it comes to communication and where they feel most comfortable, how they work and all that kind of stuff. So it's so company and person specific. It's a hard question to answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing as like, why do you bring a consultant on? Or if this person is head of HR or this person's head of community building, like, are we going to need more people that are in charge of like, hey, like, I need you to just kind of like organize me, please. I know, for example, like we use Notion and we use Slack for both are on the content creation side, like how we do all our, everything from our interviews to scripting and whatnot to all the like, you know, we're building a, a paid content platform and there's a lot more backend that goes into that. And like, I'll tell you this, like I've seen people who build beautiful notion pages. That is not what I do well. And I would actually sit there and say like, I would pay someone to come and just organize this in a really good way. So I, it makes me think of like, this is not necessarily like, you know, something investable, but like there's opportunities for people to develop 
Like if I was a kid right now taking a gap year or I was looking for a new job, like yes, social media, you want to develop an experience there, but like I would be using the hell out of all these tools and like telling people to pay me to like get it organized for whether it's a small business up into a bigger company. Yeah, no, I I think that's a really interesting perspective. I I know that because there's most people now that are getting into technology that have worked uh, in this environment for a while. So my bubble, at least to the people that I talk to are, are very much aware of the the pitfalls and things to look out for when it comes to organization and, and that sort of thing. So but for somebody who's now looking at getting into the job market that maybe is outside of technology and, and isn't versed in these tools, having some sort of course or something like that, where it's like, this is how to use all these tools effectively into one process. And this is what a process should look like and what the end goal should be, I think is a really interesting and valuable thing to look into. A hundred percent. Cause like we know that there's like courses on the specific platform, but I think the reality is that there's multi-platforms. Like everyone is using multi-platforms, right? And, you know, courses on just making people more efficient with that. I mean, it's the same thing as that you think about back in the day, you had, you know, a secretary or an assistant who is doing the emails or doing the spreadsheets, making the PowerPoint. And it's just the equivalent. It's just updated, except for the fact now that like, any kid could potentially be doing this. And I think there's that, that to me is what's exciting about things being so remote is that a lot of this is like, you have to show a bit of your grind and grit online in ways that before maybe it was more of like a personal experience. And now it's more like, just do a couple things, like show people that you can do something and get it done. And like, I think people are more open and you can do everything in like live time. Like you can send someone like, hey, check this out. This is how I would organize your thing. Like check out what I made for you or, or something like that. And I think that's exciting for young folks out there. And not even young folks, anybody who's just good with this stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a move I really like because I get asked a lot, what can I do to make myself more employable or how do I get hiring managers attention? And it's always something I recommend, which is take something from either their website or their product or content or something that's involved in the company and redo it for them. And then to say, hey, here you go. This is what I did and this is what I can do and take it if you want to. And, and if not, that's totally fine. But that initiative is, is awesome. Totally. Yeah, we had somebody do that with us actually recently for video content and I loved it. And we actually, we weren't looking for anybody to do that for us, but I had to stop myself from hiring this person because I really wanted to, <laughs> but even though we didn't need it at all, but it was, I really liked that initiative. So definitely something I would recommend. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, it's cool to think like, you know, I just turned 36 and if I was giving advice to anyone who is my age and, and whether even high school or early college or even right after college, like just get really, really good at a couple of these things, right? Like, I don't even know what that would have been back then. Like it would be everyone at that point is like, you have to be good at models on spreadsheets. Like now you've got like all these freaking tools and I can't imagine everyone's an expert in them and you need them, right? Because otherwise how the hell are these tools scaling? If like you're not good at using them, eventually like someone has to teach you how to use them properly. Like you can't go through like every single tutorial or maybe you can, but like someone's got to do it and they're going to teach somebody else or they're just going to run that whole part of the operation at the company or, or for whoever they want to do that for. So I do think that there's a lot of cool opportunities like that for folks. Yeah, totally. So the reason I asked that original question about the investing side and how you see remote work is because I've had a lot of conversations with founders and CEOs and People that I typically align with when it comes to 
the value of working on a distributed team and what that does for your company. But I haven't come across or haven't been able to talk to anybody that disagrees with me about what remote work means for companies. Because I've, I've heard the narrative of whether it's a VC or a CEO who sees remote work as too risky or is worried about their, yeah, there's a career risk component that's involved in, in having somebody in office because that's always been the norm and you don't want to disrupt things. And often I think that's VC pressure or there's, I've even heard that it's easier to exit a company, easier to sell a company if there's an office, which I don't know if that's true or not, but it doesn't seem really logical to me. But I was just wondering if there was a, from an investment standpoint, a, a counter argument to the, the benefits of remote work. Uh, you mean if I was to disagree with the whole movement towards remote work? Yeah. If you're looking at it from an investment standpoint, what would be the downside for you if the, you're looking at a remote team that you wanted to invest in? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been reading a lot of these and, and speaking with founders about simply like the experience of efficiency when it comes to being able to be with people in person. And like, it's one of those things where like someone says that you're like, well, I don't know. Like that's a very personal thing. Like, I don't think that's actually the case. I think as humans, as like a species, like we kind of thrive on interaction and interact. It's like the same thing as like having a motive, like you're sitting with someone and they're giving you a motivational talk or getting you like riled up. And like, there's something about that. Or you walk into somebody and you share some idea and you go back and forth really quickly. I do think some things will be lost. Like, and I do believe that we're actually not meant to be separated like this. We are herds. Like there is some sense of like, you know, quote unquote herd mentality, the way we move and there is a leader and there's a leader of a pack. And I think that has benefits to being in closeness. I would say that, those who, who have succeeded at remote work are generally like probably more extroverted and thrive in that environment. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to thrive in that environment. And so I wonder what ends up getting lost. So I would say that if there's a team out there, if there's a team out there that says like, listen, like, you know, and, and, and like intelligently, there's definitely teams out there like don't leave the fucking office because we don't know what to do when you're all at home. That's different. I think the balance is like we can set up remote work, but we can also have you here and we have both. What do you prefer? And I think companies that offer that, I think one can be it could be used as a recruiting tool. And I think that it potentially puts them in a, in a better place for success, right? Over, let's say, a competitor. And I say that because I think a lot of people actually miss being in an office and they miss seeing people or they they have a certain way of like going about business and, and doing things. That's just really hard to do online. It's kind of the same thing like Goldman Sachs, for example. These people are not dumb. The reason why they're incentivizing you to come to the office with free lunch is clearly there's something that benefits them over their competition. You know what I'm saying? Like their job is to make like that extra penny. And so I wonder for those who decide to make that first, like I, I would say that jumping to remote work till 2021 or 2022, like I do think that was a bit like, I don't know if you actually had to say that. I think you could have just said like, listen, th this is the option. We might change this if things get better, but we want to know that we are in favor of your health and we're in favor and protecting you. But I think in tech, especially there are extreme cases. So I, I wonder who finds the balance in that. I don't know if that's a helpful answer. but No, it's interesting. Again, I've heard so many different answers to similar kinds of questions. Because um, some companies, I was able to talk to somebody from Automatic who runs the WordPress site, and, and they have a very specific opinion and view on what remote work is. And, and they are fully distributed, and they're remote native, however you want to talk about it. Just remote-first companies, at least, that they, they prioritize people working remotely. 
And then you get companies that are forced to do so as a result of COVID, or they are now realizing that they can, and then they're sort of putting their toe in the water, uh, so to speak, when it comes to remote work and allowing people to work from home. And so there's a couple of interesting components of that. I think with the partial remote teams and uh, the hybrid model, I think that there are more downsides, and this is just my opinion when it comes to that, because then you get a sense of a office culture and a, a very different or differentiated remote culture. And I think it's harder to develop a remote culture than it is to do so in office. So I wonder if there is a disconnect between those two, those workers and the workers that are remote feel more alienated and it's just difficult to, for them to feel more part of the company. And I wonder how that plays out with with people, with companies that are bigger and, and how does that affect the culture? And like, do you go one way or the other or do you go half? And now with COVID, I think it's really difficult. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it becomes a part of culture. Like what type of culture do you want to be at? Like, do you want to be in the office or do you not? And do you not like the idea of, of having that type of balance? Like, I think when you look out, yes, software is eating the world and there's more tech companies popping up and they're thriving right now, but there are plenty of companies that don't work in that way. They're not like product teams and engineering teams that really like thrive or really understand how to work in the setting. I think there's plenty of companies outside out there that are just like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I really just can't, like, if anything, it's the opposite. Like, I can't be my myself. I, I need to be in person. And I don't know. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, it's not like just a simple balance, like come to work or don't come to work. I, I do think it's like, you have to look at personalities too, right? During COVID in New York, you know, New York cases are, I believe, knock on wood, at the lowest right now. And we're in what, the end of August, there's still people that won't leave their house. There are people that won't leave their house. They get really pissed when they see people without a mask walking outside, even though there's nobody around them. And then there's people that are comfortable walking outside with a mask and eating outside. And then there's people that are comfortable like hanging out with people inside in their small groups. And I think like, I don't want, you know, this is, I'm not, I don't want to get political about this. I absolutely believe in masks and I absolutely believe in keeping people safe and keeping the cases down. But I do think that there are generally people in extreme camps. And I, and I think that applies personality wise. I think that would apply to the work environment as well, where it's like, there's absolutely no way that you can like open up office again, or like, this is not possible to, uh, you know, I'd be fine actually being in office right now. Like, it wouldn't be a big deal. So uh, I'd be curious to what leadership does there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the interesting question over the next, well, year, I guess. And, and also with the isolation component of it now, I wonder what the long-term effects are of remote work when people associate all of the negativity and anxiety that comes along with our current situation with the idea of remote work. I have heard, and I this mentioned before, where it's like COVID remote work is not remote work. It's very specific to the environment that we're in. And so I, I wonder if that's going to be a long-term, there's going to be a backlash against it because they're like, well, now I don't want to feel what I felt when I had over the last three months or four months. And I want to get back to the office because I don't want to feel that ever again kind of idea. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the argument that makes sense to me is kind of more of the, you don't need like a headquarters in New York where everyone is either in New York or not in New York. It could be potentially where you like, again, I don't have the experience to talk intelligently about this, but in my head, it's like a, you know, you have these like hubs, you have a New York hub, you have like a outside of New York hub and then another outside of New York hub. And those teams are working remotely when you look at the entire company, but at least they get to stay in the place that they want to stay in. They don't have to like move to a big city or maybe they actually want to stay somewhere where they can go outside and go like 
hiking and be in a small town and be able to afford a house. And I do like the idea. What excites me about this when there is a balance that's struck is the balance of where you can live. I've always hated the fact that someone's like, hey, do you want to work for this company? Yeah. Will you move to San Francisco? I was like, is that a deal breaker? Yes. You're like, well, that that sucks, you know, um, versus having the ability to live where you want to live. And it's okay that you visit every once in a while. And so that's more my interest for people in general, because I think that being forced to live somewhere, it's kind of part of why, if you think about real estate prices, New York is the head of finance and San Francisco is the head of tech. There's a reason why prices went up so high because certain people become successful and they have to buy properties there. And the ones that still have to come and work there and they work at a third of the salary also want to buy properties there, but they're way too expensive. Like This doesn't make sense. We have to find some type of balance there. And maybe this is where we find it. Yeah, I hope that's true. And I also think if anything this will help us or help some people that have realized in, that they don't have to commute. Like just the simple idea of commuting now where it's like, uh, I never did, but I know uh, friends of mine that have spent at least three hours or four hours of their day in their car. And now maybe there's this opportunity for people that are having the flexibility to be like, I want to do a hobby or I want to spend more time with my family or I want to, who knows, whatever it is, uh, maybe have a healthier lifestyle or whatever. And I, I hope that, that that is allowed to more people. And, and if anything, I think that's a really good positive thing. A hundred percent agree with that. I, I think the ability to be able to come home and spend time with your family and like not be exhausted from the travel or even you're saving that extra hour, hour and a half, whatever it may be. No, totally. And I think that work life balance thing, you know, I think, look, I mean, if you have the ability to spend time with your family and be somewhere beautiful and have space in your house and not feel like, you know, you gave up an arm and a leg for it, like I think you've won. And provided that you're happy at your job and they're happy with you, if that's what you want in life. Yeah, I hope that there's more people that are realizing that they don't have to, their life isn't work and there's more to it than that, if that's what they want. I hope that's yes. accessible. Yes. So I know we're almost running up onto time here, Mesh, and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I wanted to, just before we wrap up, I wanted to talk a little bit about what it's been like for you. It seems to me that a lot of the stuff that you do now and a lot of the most interesting stories you're telling has to do with a lot to do with just journalism and coming up with a really interesting story, getting to know people to the extent that they want to open up and talk about their experience. And what has that been like for you? Is that something that you have really been enjoying or like, what is that over the last, especially over the last four months, how has that been for you? It's been amazing. It's been an incredible experience. And and I'll relate it back to investing in the sense of I've been exposed to people that I never would have been exposed to before. And, you know, funny enough, since I started this podcast, I've made like three or four investments, um, mostly LP investments, because there's a lot of people out there that are really, really great individual investors. And that's what their job is. And that's not the time I have right now. And therefore, I believe like being an investor and emerging managers right now is like, also something that you have to be somewhat decent at. And that one has exposed me to some amazing people that I know that I'm like, at least I know that they're getting into the companies that I wish I would be getting into. And at the same time, if we're just talking on the tech side, like it's exposed me to everything from like real estate. Like I, I recently learned, like I did an interview where I really, really learned about residential real estate as rental income. It's something that I never thought about before because I never, I lived in New York and I lived in Washington, DC. I just never thought about that because I was like, well, if you want a piece of rental income, like it's going to cost you like half a million bucks, but like, no, it doesn't have to, it could cost 80,000. Right. And so like my world has been exposed on the investment side so much, but in general, I've just been exposed to so many incredible humans. Like 
people who've shared their story with me, people who've been able to be vulnerable with me and, and let like, you know, talk to me. And like, I honestly wouldn't want to be doing anything else. And I think my approach here is I do really believe like a journalistic approach is is important because look, they're really, really great at telling stories. My only counter to that is that I think a lot of business journalism is told by journalists and they're not told by investors. And I think if you have a good balance of journalism and like investor insight or like business insight, you can make something really lethal from the standpoint of a customer where they're going to benefit by being engaged through stories, but they're actually going to be educated by insights. And that's always been my problem with business narrative journalism. They're either selling you a subscription or they're selling you on a story. Like they don't really care about the actual, like when it comes to curating, like what are we learning here? You know, like what what are the insights here? And that's the void that I'm trying to fill. And I think a good example would be like Guy Raz has done an incredible job with how I built this. It's it's a phenomenal show. It's opened up a whole new world of people like understanding what businesses or entrepreneurs go through. The thing is, it's very story focused. Like there's a lot of key insights that those people probably could have shared that we don't hear because it's not being asked from the mind of a either an entrepreneur or an investor. And I do think that there's different questions there. So I basically spent, and sorry for the long winded answer, I, I spent two years essentially be, like learning from really, really amazing editors and producers from podcasting who worked at like Planet Money, who worked at WNYC, who worked at Freakonomics. And I just asked them constantly, teach me to be a good interviewer, teach me to be a better, you know, think about scripts, teach me how to like think about this from like a narrative point of view. And then let me apply my own insights here. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, always fascinating to me what niches can be carved out and what, like you said, with the entrepreneurial mind, where that ends up going when it comes to storytelling and content. Like, it seems like there's an obvious value that you've been able to unlock with the stories you're telling. And it's just interesting to me that how there continues to be a gap in that space. So I will also ask you a question here that I'm selfishly going to ask, and hopefully the audience will bear with me here. But what have you learned makes a good podcast interviewer? Because obviously I have some room to improve, but also just like from somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts and obviously you're involved in it, what do you think is most important when it comes to interviewing people? Uh, you know, I, I would actually say, Matt, that you've done an incredible job of this because I'm not really used to being on the other side of the table, hence why I think I'm talking so much because I'm like <laughs> so excited to talk. Um, you let the person answer the question. You give them the space and you don't interrupt them. And I think that, yes, well, what about the Joe Rogans of the world? Like, I'm like, yeah, that's his, that's his specialty. Like Joe Rogan's a conversationalist. Like that's what he's so good at. But I think that a lot of interviews, like you hear people just speaking over the guests because they want to get their point of view. And, you know, and I, and I think that what, what I hear in a lot of these, uh, I just hear people who don't want to learn how to be an interviewer in the sense of like, this person has come on to talk about their point of view and you have to make sure that you ask them questions so that they can share that. And your job is to help guide that for the audience. Like your job is to help guide the interviewee. And so mm -hmm. it's not only getting them to talk and, and getting them to open up. It's also trying to find the tape, like the thing that you really want them to say, you just keep re-asking the question in a different way. And so you're guiding it. Like they don't know that they're saying these things, but like, you know what you want to get out of them. And you have to do that in a way that you're not interrupting them constantly. Yeah, it's a difficult balance. I think, uh, at least from my experience, it's one of my pet peeves when people interrupt in general, but especially on podcasts, because it's so clearly the not listening component of interviewing, which I think is so important. You're here to talk to the person and 
get their sense. You're not there to tell them what you think. And it's not the point of the podcast. And listeners already know what you think because you've been doing it for so long or whatever. Like you've, they've heard your take on it. It's not nothing new. But I think it's really important to get the other side and, and try to ask as many questions while listening as much as possible and as well as possible. Yeah. And I think there's a balance between having like a fun banter and conversation and stuff, you know, and I, and I, and I think it's, I I think we know, like we know when something is like, you know, you'll see it in the comments, like you'll see it on like, let's just go to like one of these YouTube interviews and you'll see in the comments, like stop interrupting him. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think, I think part of it is that a lot of podcasters don't actually want to be interviewers. Like they just want to hear their own voice or they want to hear their own voice with the other person being there. And I think that's really more of a ego thing, to be honest. Yeah, true. And also, um, also audio quality too. It's, uh, it's pretty key <laughs> and it's amazing how many people don't seem to get it. And we've made that mistake in the past. So I know there's, there's probably people that are listening to it. This and be like, yeah, you, you're one to talk. You need to get your shit together, but we're trying. So, well, I can hear it on what are you using right now for, for a mic? We're using the, the blue, I can't remember what it's called. It's, it's brand new. I, I don't, I'm not really super familiar with it. Well, it sounds good. I mean, I can hear it on my end. Um, and I, I plugged in my, I, I have this specifically for any like computer over the computer. I have a Audio-Technica ATR2100, which I can plug USB. But I actually, I usually record remote onto my Zoom with the Rode mic. And, and I'll say this is like, I learned this from the editors and producers I worked with. They are so particular about audio quality. And I think that's why there's a difference between like, and I think it's, it's why the NPRs and the public radio and, you know, New York times, et cetera, why they are so far ahead is because everything they make, they make for the audience, like the respect they have for the audience and everything from like, making sure it's the right tape or making sure the the script is right, making sure it's seamless, making sure the audio quality is really there. And I think anyone who wants to go into podcasting has to treat the audience with the same thing. Like I don't want to watch a movie that's been like recorded on a video camera in a movie theater. You know what I mean? Like I want to watch it on the IMAX screen. And I, and I think it's like, sometimes I'm still shocked at like some of these podcasts out there that have pretty massive listeners and they're still using a shitty mic. Go spend 200, like at this point you can afford a $200 mic, go do it or buy this $90 uh, ATR 2100 and just plug it in. It's going to sound way better. And a, a quick tip for remote podcasters, if your interviewee doesn't have a good mic, ask them while they're on their end on their, cause usually they're going to put their AirPods in and AirPods are terrible for recording. It's a terrible recording and you don't want the earbuds. What you want them to do is actually, if they don't have an external mic, tell them to, especially if they're doing head, you know, like we're using, we're using Zencaster. We have our headphones in, tell them to take their iPhone out or their Android device out. Tell them to put the recording app or the voice memo app, tell them to press record and then hold it to their ear. Like they're talking on the phone. And that's going to give you, better quality audio than anything you could do over Wi-Fi. That's what we do for all our episodes now after we learned it. Interesting. Wow. Okay. We will, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll include that in the show notes too. So um, if anybody's in furiously writing this down, you don't have to just look. So it someone's up. like, what, what is this guy going on about? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's definitely somebody out there that we just helped. I think it might be maybe a handful, but we're, there's, there's somebody. <laughs> good, good. Uh. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, Mesh, this has been awesome. Uh, two more questions for you. I, I sure. usually ask, um, well, actually I'll ask this one too, cause I'm not sure about the answer, but, um, I have a sense of where you're going to go with it. Um, if you weren't involved in the, um, well, there's a number of things you're involved in, but the investing, investing side, the podcasting side and, and, um, 
entrepreneurship in general, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh man. Um, oof, that's a, uh, you know, okay. It would have to be like, I, I think it would, it would have to be probably something in hospitality, but I really, you know, if I wasn't in investing or, you know, entrepreneurship or content creation or any of that crap, um, I don't know, something where I get to like take care of people. Like I really enjoy that. Uh, and, I, and I don't, I, I don't mean this in like, I could do this cause I, I don't have the book smarts or the discipline to do this, but I think in another life I would have liked to have been like a nurse or something. Like I really enjoy like taking care of people that I care about. Um, and I have a huge, huge respect for nurses and, uh, you know, we have some in our family and it's just something that I think that I would potentially enjoy. At least I say this from outside looking in, you know, I'm sure like whatever nurses are listening to me right now, like, what are you talking about? But you know, they're just incredible. They're incredible people. And I don't think they get enough attention for the work they do, but it's something that I would potentially have loved to have done in another life. Great, great answer. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, we'll dedicate this one to all the nurses out there. Um, there might be, yeah, there hopefully there's a couple that listen to it. And I, I agree. Definitely one of those professions that is underlooked and probably underpaid and undervalued and uh, hopefully in the last little while we've had more respect and, and put more thought into what these people do for us, but um, still not enough. So, so kudos to all the nurses out there. So last question for you, Mesh, and then I'll let you go. It doesn't get any easier. What is the best advice you've ever been given? Oh man. Um, there's so much great advice. I think the one that I would pay attention most to is really the don't rush to do things. Like, don't think that you need to make it overnight. Like you hear all these stories of these overnight successes and millionaires and like these young kids, like, you know, killing it. That's fine. Like money is only part of it. And I think real growth comes in the time and the experience. And like, you know, you have no idea what you're capable of doing until, you know, years down. My dad actually would give me this advice. He'd say like, when you're 30, you, you know, you're, you're going to realize that like, you know, you're, you're, you're moving too fast and this and that. And I never really thought about it until I became 30, you know, and realizing how much growth that we have as humans, both in, in terms of not only like forget work experience, but like personal experience, personal growth, our relationships and how that makes us potentially better at our work and at what we want to do. So don't rush, like think of everything in like five to 10 years and, and be okay with that. Have the patience and enjoy the ride, enjoy the growth to that point, And then, you know, look forward to the next 10. Yeah. And that's great advice. I like that a lot. And I, I just wanted to thank you. Actually, this was a great conversation. We, we went a different direction than we normally do. Uh, and I think it really showed that, uh, you know, we're going to do some more interesting things in the future. And this was really valuable. So thank you so much. Where should we be sending people to know more about you and more about what you are doing and your uh, your website and things like that? Yeah, um, you know you, everything that I'm doing now, content related, and you know everything you, you want to know about me is on uh, my website, thetalkmoney.com. Um, you know that's where you'll find the podcast, and you'll find a lot of the stuff that we're working on, um, and, and including like you know if you're interested in some of the the investment background that I have, um, and then you know follow me on Twitter at uh, meshlakani. And I just want to say, you know, Matt, one, this is actually a ton of fun. It, it's, it's, it's fun being on the other side. I really enjoyed this. It was a very different conversation and I really appreciating you taking a risk is a risk on me as a, as a guest. Cause I know I'm not your typical guest. Um, but I thank you for, for, you know, letting me be on and sharing me uh, with your audience. That's great. Thank you so much, Mesh. It's it, pleasure's all ours. And uh, maybe there's a room for a number two here as, as we come out of COVID and hopefully we, 
uh, can talk about New York and what it looks like in a year from now if we get there. So um, appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you, man. Take care. All right. Bye. Thanks so much again for listening to the show. Be sure to check out WeWorkRemotely.com for the latest remote jobs. And if you're looking to hire a remote worker, WeWorkRemotely is the fastest and easiest way to do so. As always, if you have someone we should talk to, any advice you have, or if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, please reach out to us at podcast at WeWorkRemotely.com. That's podcast at WeWorkRemotely.com. Thanks so much again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.